Hello and welcome to the Aware Parenting Stories podcast. My name is Joss Golden and I am so happy that you're here. In this podcast series, I interview people who are passionate about parenting. We talk about many things to do with parenting and motherhood and explore the joys and challenges that we all face in our families. The aim of the podcast is to share more about aware parenting, to inspire us all on our parenting adventures, and to support us all to raise our children with more awareness, connection, and love. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Aware Parenting Stories podcast. Today, I am so excited to have Aletha Salter, PhD, on the episode. Welcome, Aletha. Thank you so much for making time to talk to us. Thank you. I look forward to talking with you. So Aletha Salter, PhD, is a Swiss-American developmental psychologist, mother of two grown children, international speaker, workshop leader, and consultant. She studied with Dr. Piaget at the University of Geneva, Switzerland, where she earned a master's degree in human biology. She holds a PhD in psychology from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and her several parenting books have been translated into many languages. She has led workshops for parents and professionals in many countries and is recognized internationally as an expert on attachment, trauma, and non-punitive discipline. Most importantly for us, she founded the Aware Parenting Institute in 1990 in order to promote the philosophy of child rearing based on her work. And there is now a growing list of certified Aware Parenting instructors who are helping to spread this approach around the world. And your most recent book, Aletha, Healing Your Traumatized Child, A Parent's Guide to Children's Natural Recovery Processes, is what we're going to be talking about today. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for that introduction. I look forward to talking about this new book with you. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, it's it's an amazing book and it's only just been published, hasn't it? It was just in August that it was published. Yes, a month ago, a month and a half ago. So I thought we might just talk through the the main points of the book, if you're happy to do that. And perhaps we could start off by just talking about, you know, what is trauma? How is our understanding of trauma changed over the years? And what what do we now know trauma to be? Well, I define trauma in my book as anything that a child perceives to be threatening or dangerous or frightening, whether it is or not. So it all depends on how the child interprets an experience. So something that we don't think would be traumatic, like seeing someone wearing a, a scary mask, or I mean, they might that might be a trauma for a child. So it, it's it's what the child perceives to be frightening or threatening. And I love how yeah. you discuss the concept of mini traumas as well, because we we all think of trauma as being you know, the big, really significant events in people's lives. Yes, we, we tend to forget about many traumas, which are maybe, you know, the child can't find her favorite toy, or she's broke, something broke, or I think some little thing happened at school that, that we wouldn't think about as a major trauma. But the accumulation of these mini traumas has much the same effect on, on a child as, a, as one single major trauma in some ways. We mustn't forget about the mini traumas. I think that's really helpful as well for parents to understand that therefore all of us and all of our children are going to experience trauma in their lives, regardless of how we parent, regardless of how attuned we are. It's just inevitable as part of being alive that think we're going to experience traumatic events. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's, I, I make it very clear 
when I work with parents that it's impossible to prevent, you know, bad things from happening to our children. We can do our best to protect them and we can do our best to not be the sources of trauma ourselves, but we cannot protect them from life itself. And that's, that's where um, to just recognize it's, it, the traumas that our children experience are not necessarily our fault. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's so nice because not only is your book so empowering for parents because it teaches them how to support their children. I love mm-hmm. that message that it's not, there's not a blame. It's not about blaming us or that we've somehow failed as parents if our children experience trauma. Right. That's correct. So you talk extensively and in the book, you give this really beautiful detailed description of how trauma impacts our children's bodies, the physiological impacts on our nervous system, on our genes, on our neurology, on our cognitive functioning. Can you talk a little bit about those processes, those impacts and and how that is? Obviously, people should read this book to get more detail. (laughs) Yeah. Just to summarize, you know, there are two well, I'll go into the two major reactions to trauma. One is called hyperarousal. It's also better known with the name the fight or flight response. And the other is dissociation, also known as the freeze or numbing response. So these are two very different reactions, and they're both for, for survival for different reasons. So we, adults do this too, but it's children definitely are can react in both these ways. And it's important to understand that to, to really get a clue as to what's going on with, you know, when they behave in, in some of these ways. So they can act, they can react to trauma in these ways while the trauma is happening. And then they can also react in similar ways when they get triggered, when they're reminded of the trauma. If they haven't healed from it, they can react again with either hyperarousal or dissociation. And these two states correspond to very different neurophysiology (laughs) in our bodies. And uh, this is becoming better known now than it was 50 years ago. And it has been pretty well studied, you know, what what hormones and neurotransmitters are involved in these two, in these two very different states. Hmm. And is it possible for children to, to have both reactions at different times? Can children have this hyperarousal response sometimes and a dissociation response at other times? Or do we typically go to one as a response to trauma? A child can react very differently to different traumas. And one thing that researchers have learned is that the dissociation response, the freezing or numbing response, is much more common in younger children and infants uh, because they are so helpless. Their bodies know that they can't run away, they can't fight, they can't defend themselves. So they dissociate that. And that's, that's very common in babies and very young children. But in some children, as they get older, they, they, they use either response. So dissociation stays with us throughout life. Even when we get older, it's one possible reaction to trauma. Mm. And I, I like how you you talk about the fact that even with accumulated mini traumas, it can also push our body into that hyperarousal or that dissociation state too. So it's not just when we're triggered and reminded of the initial trauma that we have these responses. It can be like an ongoing accumulation of feelings that then pushes us into these responses. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes these mini traumas do remind us in some way of some previous bigger trauma. So there's a lot going on. When a mini trauma happens, it could be triggering a previous bigger trauma, or it could just be 
a brand new mini trauma. (laughs) But when there's an accumulation, then our bodies go into overwhelm sometimes. So how does trauma affect our feelings and and therefore affect our, our children's feelings and therefore affect their behavior? Because this seems to be so well, misunderstood. Trauma. Yeah, okay, the behavior is special. Well, trauma causes terror and rage. Those are the two main primary emotions, terror, fear, and, and rage, anger. Other emotions are grief. Powerlessness is a big one. It accompanies all traumatic experiences, as does overstimulation, overwhelm, which is causes confusion. Guilt and shame can be part of certain traumas. So the children's behaviors then reflect whether they're in hyperarousal or dissociation. So the hyperarousal behaviors, when a child child is in hyperarousal, they're going to be very active, hyperactive, impulsive, sometimes aggressive, sometimes violent, destructive, uncooperative. They don't sleep well, just very agitated in their bodies. And that can be an indication of unhealed trauma, Mm. that the child's being triggered by by something that happened in the Mm. past, or they have an accumulation of of many traumas like we talked about. So, and the other reaction, the other behaviors to look for are, which are typical of dissociation, are are very unusual calmness, passivity, and not a healthy calmness. It's a passive calmness. And often there's self-soothing behaviors such as thumb sucking or head, you know, rocking back and forth, that those kinds of self-soothing behaviors. Children who are in dissociation are often inattentive, just unresponsive, unemotional. And these children don't often get the help they need. You know, the children who are hyper hyperactive or in hyperarousal and, and causing problems and aggressive and disobedient and all these things that parents and teachers find so challenging, those children get help. They get some kind of help. It might not be the right kind of help, but they get attention for it. They get an intervention. They, people try to help them. Whereas children who dissociate, they often don't get the help they need because they don't really disrupt anything. You know, mm-hmm. they're just very quiet. And, and we tend to assume perhaps incorrectly that all is well with these quieter children. So I almost almost worry more about those because they don't get the help they need. Yeah, often we think of those children as the easy ones, the, yes. the ones that yeah don't need yeah. attention. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it's interesting though how misunderstood that is, how frequent it is for adults to to misunderstand that these behaviors are symptoms of trauma and that they're mm-hmm. so often seen as, and you describe this so beautifully in your book, yeah. as personality traits or, or psychiatric disorders right. or behavioral conditions. And you know, with yes. typical mainstream parenting that is so punitive and, and can be quite harsh, particularly when children are behaving in these ways. Not only does that not help with the trauma, but it also adds layers to it, doesn't it? With all of that punishment and, and shame and, and you know, labeling and, and or medicating children and, and all of those things. So with instead of seeing that behavior as this beautiful physiological coping mechanism that it is, it's seen as something that needs to be managed or modified. Yes, absolutely. There's and that's one of the main reasons I wrote this book, is because there's such a huge misunderstanding of of the symptoms of trauma and also of children's efforts to heal from trauma are also misunderstood. So there's two layers of misunderstanding here. 
But the first step is to recognize when it's trauma instead of just assuming they're misbehaving or, or they need the medication or or just assuming that it's they were just born that way. It's part of their personality. You know, it's the one person this book is to really try to clarify those misinterpretations mm. of children's behaviors. Yeah. So I mean, that's obviously a really important first thing for people to understand that you know, when our children are behaving in these ways, it's it's often a powerful illustration of the fact that they've experienced trauma and they're now experiencing those symptoms of trauma in their bodies. And it's like a physiological thing. One of the other things I think is really beautiful about your book is you talk in detail about how children are born knowing how to recover and that they need support and understanding in order to do so. And then you describe this very active process whereby children are able to integrate their traumatic experiences, processing the emotions and completing the survival behaviors that were sort of blocked at the time. Can you talk a little bit about that, how we know that this process is actually an innate, powerful process in our bodies? We know because that's what children do spontaneously when when they're feeling safe. And that's when the healing can begin. So yeah, in order for these natural healing processes to be activated, children do need to feel safe. That is the basic condition. I call it emotional safety. And there needs to be a trauma trigger. They need to revisit trauma in some way. They need to be aware of it, be reminded of it just a little bit. And then and then the, the healing can begin. So it's that balance. This is a very important concept, what I call the balance of attention between feeling safe and revisiting the trauma in some way. And that's when the healing begins. And it is very active. And that's another important point because many people think that, oh, we just need to calm children down or we just need to not talk about it or help them forget about it. Let's do something fun. Let's not even think about it. Or let's just, you know, take take a few deep breaths and we'll they'll feel better. And that's not how children heal. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. Children don't heal by forgetting about trauma, or nor do they heal by just calming down. They heal by becoming very active and implementing what I call natural biological healing mechanisms. Mm. And I love how you describe that that is a spontaneous automatic process if the conditions are right, that children will just naturally go into because it is this innate healing biological process. Right. Absolutely. That's what children do spontaneously. We don't need to make them do these things. They just do them. They know how to heal. That's another major, major point in this book. Mm. Children know how to heal. And they will heal when the conditions are right spontaneously. And it's, it's up to us as parents and uh, you know, as adults who are with them to, to recognize the attempts to heal and to facilitate and to allow them to do what their bodies are designed to do. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the amazing things about aware parenting is it's so helpful for us to learn how to trust our children. And I think this is such a key concept in that trusting process that that it is a natural, innate, powerful healing system that our children are accessing. And so we can trust them. Yeah. 
yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the concept of trust because it is it, it is a very trusting process. We have to trust that they they know what they're doing when it looks even when it looks like they're falling apart. I mean, we haven't gone into detail, but one of the main healing mechanisms is by crying, uh, even by having temper tantrums. And this that's difficult to trust when our children are are having these meltdowns and it's loud and it's it's active and we tend to feel, oh my goodness, what's happening? Have I failed as a parent? You know, but that's the that's where we really need to trust is that they're doing what their bodies need to do. Mm. Yes, indeed. So you talk about the ingredients, really. Um, I don't think you use that word, but I'm using that word. The ingredients for creating yeah. healing and creating that what you call that emotional safety for our mm. children. What are mm. some of the most important uh, aspects of that before we get into the actual supporting our children with the specifics of healing? Yeah, just, just uh, first of all, just give a lot of attention to children. They do need us to spend time with them, to interact playfully with them, to avoid all punishments and rewards. Children cannot feel safe if there is a threat of punishment. Um, We need to obviously do our best not to hurt them ourselves, let them feel physically safe. We need to deal with our own emotions if we're feeling angry or if we're, you know, anything that causes us to feel angry or impatient. We need to look for the sources of that. And it may go back to our own childhood. (laughs) It may simply mean that we're not getting enough sleep (laughs) or not eating right or not getting enough help with parenting. But whatever is causing us to feel resentful or angry of our children, that will make it difficult for them to feel emotionally safe and to begin the healing process. So it's a whole process of creating that safety in the context of the parent-child relationship. Mm. And we have to be ready to listen and accept what they need to tell us, not in words necessarily, but through their emotions. Mm. And I think that's one of the biggest learnings that's ongoing with aware parenting is is having that awareness of when our children are trying to heal and they're trying to share with us, having an awareness of what their behaviors are telling us and that this this relationship between behavior and and feelings and needs it's it's so powerful isn't it and i really love that you brought in the non punitive discipline because i've thought a lot about the impact of punishments and and how we don't want to be having them in our families and how they're not effective and how they're detrimental to our relationship. But I hadn't ever really thought about it in in the context of healing trauma and how important Mm -hmm. it is to create that safety for for healing to occur. Right. Yes, absolutely. It's it's absolutely essential. Children cannot heal in a home where punishments are being used. No, no. So, I mean, obviously the two main ways that I, I mean you you talk about children healing through crying through laughter through play through tantrums through movements different body movements but mm-hmm. the two main things in that are really through play and and crying and, and tantrums so if we just mm-hmm. start off with play and your amazing book attachment play I would highly recommend for everybody to read as well We tend to think of play as being quite a frivolous sort of silly childish activity. And and also actually parents talk say, well, of course I play with my children. I I play a lot with my children. But you're really talking about a very Mm -hmm. specific or nine very specific forms of play to support children with healing from trauma. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, right. So there are nine forms of play that I call attachment play. And some of them are especially effective in creating this emotional safety that we just talked about. And some of them are especially effective in helping children revisit trauma. So they can help in two ways. And some of them uh, have both of these aspects uh, of helping children feel safe and helping children revisit trauma. These are forms of play that are interactive play between parents and children, preferably one parent with one child. And they're, they're very focused. Parent is very focused on the child. They're, they can happen anywhere at any time. So, I mean, the basic one is what I call non-directive child-centered play. And that's the, the fundamental one is just paying attention to the child and letting the child do what children do what they want to do with a variety of materials and just sitting there and watching and observing and commenting and, you know, sharing what we see happening. And then children will use those opportunities to bring up trauma and to heal from it. If the parents really sit there paying attention and don't try to direct the play or don't try to teach their children anything. So that's the basic form of attachment play. And that really creates emotional safety while giving the child opportunities to revisit trauma if the child wishes to do so. Yes. I mean, you talk about laughter. Can you can you speak a little bit about that, why that is an important component of play in terms of healing? Yeah, right. Um, laughter is very important. It's just as important as crying. And it is a release of painful emotions, usually fear, anxiety, embarrassment. We release those through laughter. Light anger, sometimes we release all that through laughter. Uh, laughter doesn't replace crying and crying doesn't replace laughter, but it's it's very beneficial. Some of these forms of attachment play involve laughter and some of them don't. Mm-hmm. But the ones that involve laughter, then laughter becomes one of the main healing components, mm-hmm. those that involve laughter. You talk about other games to, to build connection for, for example, body contact games. Why is that important for children? That's helpful for creating emotional safety, touch, connection. And, and it's it's great, you know, to hug children and, and just hold them on our laps and co-sleeping and all these wonderful ways of, of being physically close. But we can also incorporate this into play. And children love these games, just holding hands or hand clapping games or creating a human sandwich where, you know, whoever wants to can be in the middle and you all lie on top of each other. And those are activities with body contact. And children who have been really severely abused they may resist touch. So we need to be aware not to impose touch on children who have been severely abused, sexually abused, or physically abused too. They they just resist touch. They're frightened. Now, understandably, frightened of human contact. And so we can incorporate touch very gradually and very, very gently into playful interactions with these children until they regain the ability to trust. Yes. yes. Um, and nonsense play, that's another one of the attachment plays. How, how does that help with building connection? It helps building collection and heal through trauma. I mean, heal from trauma through laughter. It's just being silly. It's making mistakes, allowing the child to make mistakes, allowing the uh, child or the, or the adult to exaggerate things, just to, just to be silly children who be allowed to make mistakes and to laugh about it. 
I mean, just something simple as putting your pajamas on wrong and, and just having having your your mother's laugh with you, you know, or, or purposely doing a puzzle incorrectly or reciting a uh, singing a song all wrong. It, it really can help children feel, feel more connected and feel less anxious, less anxious about making mistakes, less anxious about just life in general, <laughs> mm. to laugh. Laughter is the key here. With nonsense play, laughter is important and it, it really dissipates anxiety. Mm. And it's fun for parents too, isn't it? To, it is. To be silly it and is. to give ourselves permission no, to have a to, bit of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that some parent, people think of play as just nonsense and silliness. Well, sometimes it is. <laughs> That's, that is one of the important kinds of play. Yeah. 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 So um, you've talked about non-directive child-centered play, and I wonder if you might just talk a little bit about how bringing a timer to that, like what you recommend that looks like for parents and and what the timer element does to support healing. It's important for children to know that you're going to pay attention to them without looking at your phone, without answering the door, without reading a book, without doing anything else for a definite period of time. And I find it helpful to set a timer. Many parents find it helpful to set a timer, even if it's only 10 minutes, you know, 20 to 30 minutes is good. It's most of us can, you know, hang in there for 20 to 30 minutes. An hour might be a little long unless you really, really have a lot of patience, but every day would be great to tell a child, look, it's our special time. It's our special mommy time or daddy time. Um, We're just going to do whatever you want to do. You've got 20 minutes here. I'm setting the timer. What do you want to do? And then we have to obey the child at those times. We have to do what they want to do, whether we're totally bored with it or not. That's, that's important. And that, that helps them feel safe and connected. Mm, So nice. I've, I've really loved doing that in my family. So, so helpful. One of the other forms of play that is really helpful for healing, you describe beautifully, is the symbolic play, and that can be particularly helpful for revisiting trauma. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, symbolic play, it's like the non-directive child-centered play, except that we bring in the the theme. We suggest a theme or a toy or a theme which helps the child uh, revisit a specific trauma. So, for example, if the child had a, you know, very long birth experience, very, if the mother had a very long labor, we can um, invite the child to crawl through a tunnel, for example, and help the child feel empowered by crawling through the tunnel and arriving su- successfully at the other end. So that could be a birth little birth therapy session through play, mm. through successfully mastering that transition through a tunnel. If a child has been you know, frightened by a barking dog or bitten by a dog, we can, we can bring a stuffed dog, a toy dog, and pretend to make it bark. We can let the child play with the dog, pretend to bite us with the dog, and, and, and just bring in that play theme around the dog. And that can help a child work through it. So, yes, the point of symbolic play is to help the child revisit a specific traumatic event. 
Yeah. And I love how you describe that as introducing a theme and then allowing our children yeah. to, to go with it, to, to run with it and to support them through that process. But again, that's, there's a lot of trust involved there as well, isn't there? You talk a couple of other aspects of play that you discuss. Regression play can be really helpful if children have been traumatized. Yeah, regression play is when a child pretends to be a baby or wants to, you know, just, oh, mama, just, just, can you put diapers on me? Can you treat me like a baby? Can you give me a bottle? Or, or they might not even ask. They might just start talking baby talk or, or you know, four-year-olds say, me want food. You know, they might talk like a baby, especially if they have a younger sibling. If we go along with this and treat the child like a baby playfully, um, that's what I call regression play. And it can be really helpful. Well, it, it accomplishes two things. It helps the child feel safe, but it also can help them revisit trauma if they had a traumatic early infancy period when they actually were a baby. It's especially helpful for adopted children who might not have had, you know, who were adopted after infancy, who might have missed out on loving, nurturing while they were a baby. It, it, it helps them. We can't change the past, but we can go back and, and redo it in play. And that's that's part of the healing process. Wow. So we actually change the child's memory. We do. We reprogram a child's memory with these forms of play sometimes. Oh, I love that description. So nice. Yeah. Um, and the last one that you talk about really in relation to healing trauma is the power reversal games. Yeah. That's probably the form of play I recommend most often to parents. And this is especially helpful for children who are, who are aggressive and, and very active. And it's when, it's when we parents pretend to be weak or frightened. So we're reversing the power dynamics here in play. We let the child knock us down with a pillow and we pretend to be weak and we exclaim, oh, you knocked me down. You're so powerful. Or, or they, we let them frighten us with a, with a snake, a plastic snake, or a plastic spider, or a wolf mask, and we run away and say, yikes, it's a wolf chasing me. Uh, so th these are power reversal games, and I, I think it's pretty clear why these help children uh, heal from trauma, because they empower children. As I said earlier, one major um, emotion resulting from all traumatic experiences is a feeling of powerlessness. So this, this helps to redress the balance, so to speak, in terms of helping children feel powerful, even if it's only through play and laughter. And, and this, is, this is really, power reversal play is really only effective when, when the child laughs. Okay, that, that's part of the healing process. To release that anxiety of, of having felt powerless and having been very frightened or, or hurt you know, so traumatized in some way. Mm. When children are acting aggressively, they're in this hyperarousal state and it looks like they want to hit. And this is the, they're in the fight or flight response here. And this game can be especially helpful. It gives them an outlet for that energy, for the, those body movements are part of the healing process because that's what they weren't able to do. The reason they were traumatized is that they weren't able to defend themselves. And so they got traumatized. They weren't able to flee. They weren't able to fight. And so they got traumatized. And that's, that's why it can be very helpful for, for aggressive children. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I really loved how you talked about that, those active body movements, like almost mimicking really those survival behaviors that 
either to, to attack or to defend right. yourself and how helpful. Yeah, that's what they're doing. That's what they do. They need to, I think of healing as the completion of what didn't happen at the time of the trauma. It's a child going through that while remembering the trauma, while revisiting the trauma and redoing it, completing what didn't get completed at the time. Mm. Yeah. And it's so clear why that would be helpful and empowering for children to do that and particularly to do that in a playful way. Right. Children love these games. They love them. Yeah. (laughs) And, yeah. I, and I really highly recommend that people read your book on attachment play. It's so helpful. And, and in this book, your Healing the Traumatized Child book, you also give a lot of examples um, at the back of different mm. situations where people have used these different techniques in order to specifically heal traumas. So I, that's really mm-hmm. helpful as well. Separation, separation games too. Did we talk about separation? No, we games? didn't. Yeah, hide and seek, peekaboo, all those are, are, I think it's pretty obvious those help children recover from separation trauma. Hide and seek. So that's another important one. And I guess separation trauma is again can be one of those mini traumas that that all children will experience at some stage. We actually we can't prevent them from experiencing those those traumas. And obviously no. sometimes it's a big trauma, but you know, mini yeah. traumas as well in relation to that. A, yes, it can separation can be a mini trauma. In fact, when and when we were angry with our children or preoccupied and don't have good attention for them, that's that's sort of for them, it's sort of like a separation trauma because there's disconnection. Mm. So that's even though there's no physical separation, they can experience sort of mini separation trauma if we're not totally present emotionally for them. Mm. Mm. So so playing these games then, like peekaboo or hide and seek and those kind of things. And why is that helpful? Because because a child experiences a successful reunion in play. And, and there's separation and reunion, separation, reunion repeatedly, and that can help heal the trauma. Mm, beautiful. So thank you so much for all of that. I'd also love to talk to you about crying um, for healing as well and how that is a sort of homeostatic tension release mechanism. How, how does it work? How does it help us and our children to, to release? There's, there's many aspects of crying that might be all be therapeutic. One thing, there's a, Stress hormones are uh, present in tears. That crying, shedding tears can help excrete excessive amounts of stress hormones from our bodies. So it could contribute to homeostasis in that way. Uh, it's also getting the, the closeness with another person can help balance our nervous system. The body movements involved in crying and tantrums are also very important. And, and, and play a similar role to the body movements in the power reversal games we talked about. Uh, a full-blown temper tantrum is a full-body experience. And then again, those are the movements of fight or flight that we see with the child's arms and legs, uh, moving them very in those ways that, uh, that can help them heal. So there's several aspects of crying that can, that can really help mm-hmm. contribute to healing. And we see by the results. We see by the results. Children have a good cry. They're so much more happy, relaxed in their bodies, cooperative, much less aggressive afterwards. It's just uh, they sleep better, too. 
Yes, and, and we know that experience as adults, don't we? How good that oh, we yeah. feel after yeah. a good cry. So, but it's so obvious in our children when we observe them after having a big cry or a big tantrum, the complete shift uh-huh. in their energy and their their whole physiological. I mean, it's just so striking yeah. how relaxed they can be after that process. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the other things that's misunderstood in our society that you talk about is about crying and, and tantrums. And, and when with aware parenting, we see obviously crying as a process of becoming unhurt and that it's it's a process of releasing and healing the stress from our bodies. But often that is misunderstood in our society and seen as either with crying, it's often seen as an immediate physical need um, in babies and all that mm-hmm. it's something that yeah. we need to soothe, like show our children how to soothe themselves when they are in these states. So yeah, how, do we, well, how do we change that talk? How do we change, we change that? It. We change it by understanding what the, the meaning and function of crying. And I think one of the reasons there is confusion is that in babies, you know, babies do cry to communicate an immediate need. And this is one reason it gets confusing. So there's two reasons for crying during infancy. And one is to communicate. And then when we've met the need, the crying stops. But when babies are crying to heal from trauma, for example, they've had a traumatic birth, or they've had a really overstimulating day, then there is no immediate need. And that's when we need to just try to relax and understand, oh, this is the second function of crying. And that's when we can implement with infants, what I call the crying in arms approach to really support them when they're crying. And, and, and resist the temptation to put something in their mouth or to, to rock them or to soothe them or to calm them down. Babies know how to reach a calm state. They, we don't, they don't need to be taught, but they need to go through some emotions, some emotions before they reach that state. So if we, we try to force them to reach that state prematurely uh, by, by giving them something to suck on or by shushing them or or rocking them just to get them to stop crying, they will calm down, but it's usually only temporary. And that's when problems can arise because uh, babies who are calm, calm down artificially without finishing their crying in arms that they need to do, they don't stay calm for very long and they don't sleep very well. They might sleep for one or two hours, but then they'll wake up still needing to cry still needing to complete that process. I think one way is to just experiment and see what happens. And then parents often um, say, wow, my baby slept for a longer stretch. Wow, this is amazing. Or wow, my baby was so so much more cuddly after crying and so much more, or my toddler was so much more cooperative and much less aggressive. When parents see the results, it's, it's not difficult to, to really understand and become convinced that this is what babies and children need to do. Mm. Mm. And, and what are the key things if our children are crying, if our baby's crying, or if they're having a tantrum, what are the important things that we need to do in order to support them in that process? Well, we need to do as little as possible, basically, when <laughs> we do too much. We don't want to talk too much. We don't want to shush them. We can, so what do we do? We hold, we hold them. If they're little, we hold them. If they're older, we get close, ask if they want to be held. But we stay close, maybe with a hand on their back. And we pay, just pay attention. We just listen. We say, yeah, I hear you. I love you. I'm with you. It's okay to cry. 
uh, I'll stay with you until you feel better. That's a good thing to say. You don't have to explain anything in an older child. You don't have to explain anything. You know, often we're curious to know, oh my gosh, what happened? What's my child crying about? They may not even be able to tell us. They may not know in words how to explain if they've had a whole whole day at school of frustrating, stressful experiences. They don't even know where to begin. They just need to have a good cry. And so it's not helpful to try to get information at those times. Just listening, just listening and trusting. There's that word trust again, right? Just trusting that they're they're doing that because they need to do it. Yeah, it's so simple, but it's also so hard at times. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's yeah. so powerful. And I really like what you, you discussed this, the incorrect assumption that, that crying indicates yeah. our children are hyper aroused. And so we should be calming them down because there's so much talk now about regulation and self-soothing mm. and all this kind of mm-hmm. thing. And lots of professionals who, who are you know trying to support parents in these ways talk about mm-hmm. this emotional regulation and soothing stuff, but it's really missing the point, isn't it? It is. I don't even use the term emotional regulation in, in my work in aware parenting because it's it can mean, first of all, it can mean lots of different things. It's the most ill-defined term in psychology at the moment, in my opinion. And, and secondly, what it often does mean is, is suppression of emotions. And that's not what we want to be doing. Yeah. So this book is obviously written for children up to 12 years old. And you do talk a little bit in the book about parents and our own traumas and and things. Are you, are you able to just give a little bit of information about how you might support an older child or how you might recommend a parent might support themselves? Because when we start to become aware of the extent of trauma that our children are experiencing, even though we're raising them with aware parenting, it often brings us really powerfully face-to-face with the extent of trauma that we're all holding too, even if we've had therapy, yeah. because most of us weren't parented this way. In fact, no. No. So what, what do you recommend for older children and, and for adults too in, in terms of healing our own trauma? Is it the same sort of processes or is it something a bit different? Um, yeah, sort of. First of all, you said, clarify one thing. You said this book is written for children. It's written actually for adults. I know you know that, but just to make it clear to those who are listening, it's written for adults of children, of parents of children from 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 birth to age 12 by older children do you mean like teenagers yeah 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 well it's the same process and it's basically listening listening is the fundamental key here uh, helping children feel safe Uh, older children may may need to talk they need me to talk about traumas and they can do some healing that way there's forms of attachment play that can be adapted to older children Uh, no child is ever too old to to draw to draw or work with, with, work with you know, clay or Play-Doh, to revisit trauma, even teenagers, even adults, we can revisit trauma in those ways, or, or we can revisit trauma just by talking to, but nobody's ever too old to have a good cry. <laughs> so uh, those are the, the basic principles are the same, feeling safe and revisiting trauma, and then doing what our bodies need to do. Mm. Yeah. And oh, and our own healing, you mentioned. Oh, yes. Okay. That's <laughs> our own healing as adults. Yes. We're going to get triggered. We all get triggered by children's trauma. We may be reminded of our own similar trauma. We may just get triggered by the fact that they're crying as something we weren't allowed to do or something we were punished for. So, part of this whole 
aware parenting approach is to find support for ourselves as adults and to do our own healing and get help. And uh, sometimes it helps to have uh, someone to uh, take turns listening and sharing with a partner, a listening partner, or with, with our partner that we live with to take turns talking and listening with each other. Sometimes we might need a, a therapist to, to talk to and really someone who can listen to us and help us work through our own past childhood traumas and, and also cope with the difficulties of being a parent, which is uh, it's not easy. No. Right? No, <laughs> it's not, not easy, easy at all. It's Ongoing not always crisis. easy. Yeah. 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 That's really helpful. Thank you. The last thing that you say in your book really is to talk about the impact really of unhealed trauma, both at, at an individual mm-hmm. level and at a family level and yeah. also at a societal level. Are you are you able to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, yeah, you know, people who grow up with unhealed trauma, that I personally feel that's that's one of the main reasons why there are problems in the world, why there are wars and violence and why we're ruining the planet. And it's one of the main reasons why humans hurt other humans, basically. We're growing and people grow up with unhealed trauma. They're they're going to be chronically hyper-aroused or dissociated. They're not going to function well. They're not going to make wise decisions. And especially if these people become leaders, political heads of countries or leaders, or or just even on a lower level, anyone who works with other people, teachers, they can, even with the best intentions, they might not be functioning as well as they could, and they might be causing damage. So it, I think we can heal, you know, by helping our children heal while they're young, we can help the whole world heal. I really feel this, this, will, this, this can have really wide-ranging repercussions for the whole world to raise children with this approach. Mm. I'm actually very hopeful. <laughs> you know, the, the, the things we do as parents in our own homes can have a huge impact on the world. Mm. Yes. yes, yes, yes. Yes. Wow. And I mean, I think there are so many aware parenting instructors in the world who are just so touched by this aspect of this work and the extraordinary thing that you've created by creating the Aware Parenting Institute, by writing these incredible books, by doing all the research that you've done. I really hope that you are aware of how how highly regarded you are by so many thousands of families around the world and how important this work is for exactly that reason and how people are just so given this optimism, we're given this sense that actually it's going to be okay because because you've created this work, because you've supported so many families to be able to offer this to their children. And it's just so powerful. So thank you so much on behalf of everybody. <laughs> thank you. For the incredible thank you. Work. I'm so touched. I'm so touched with saying this. Yes. I really, I really, uh, you know, I do, I do, I am beginning to feel that this really is having an impact. And uh, that's one of the reasons I'm hopeful because it is spreading, you know, people like you are helping to spread this approach with the, uh, with your with your podcast and with uh, other other work you do with parents and uh, I, I'm just I'm just very excited to be part of this this whole movement and to, you know have found a way to to say things that that make sense to parents and that to, 
to basically, I didn't create any of this. I didn't invent it. I, I just, I just, the information is there. I just synthesized it and organized it in a way that's accessible to parents. The information is there. It's, it's, it's all research. So that's really all I've done. <laughs> So, yeah, I would recommend everybody reads all of your books, actually, several times. And particularly this one, Healing Your Traumatized Child, is, is so interesting. Is there anything else from the book that you haven't had a chance to say in the last couple of minutes that you wanted to get across? Or do you think we've covered everything? Yeah, I want to emphasize again how helpful parents can be. That, that was one major point in my book, that, that we can help our own children heal but I also think it's important to understand this. Some children may still need professional therapy. Okay, I think that's important to know. And, and again, that we're not necessarily the cause of our children's trauma. And we mustn't overlook medical traumas, those kinds of traumas. Those, those can be very traumatic for children. I think those have been kind of forgotten about. You talk about childhood trauma, you focus on abuse, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect. But we mustn't forget medical trauma. To. And this is this is sometimes necessary to keep children alive, you know. To, but there is a lot of trauma that happens in, in medical situations, mm. and several of the examples in my book are uh, medical trauma. But once again, parents can help. We can be really, really helpful as parents. We just need to acknowledge, recognize symptoms of trauma, and recognize and facilitate children's efforts to recover because they know how to do it. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. It's so empowering, isn't it, for for parents to know that they obviously there are times when we need external professional support for our children. Mm -hmm. But even, even in those situations where our children do require professional support, still practicing these these beautiful ways to support our children at home is incredibly helpful and, and will be transformative. So it's really empowering. Um, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Aletha. How can people find out more about you? And where is your, I'll put all the links, obviously, in the show description. But Oh, I have a website. It's awareparenting.com. And there are, there's information about my six books on my website. There's information about all the countries. There are links to all the countries where there are aware parenting activities in the world. And there are several, many articles on my website uh, summarizing very uh, various aspects of this approach. So it's it's all there on my website. That's the place to go. And my books are available from not not through me, not through my website. So they're they're available from. They should be available from all the bookstores and online booksellers around the world. Great, great. So, well, thank you so much for making time. I know that you're extremely busy, so I'm very, very grateful for you coming on and explaining in such depth all of these key concepts that you've described so beautifully in this book, and I'm very grateful. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, and thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you for joining me on Aware Parenting Stories. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To find out more, please visit my website, www.awareparenting.com.au and follow me on social media at Aware Parenting with Joss. I wish you much connection and love on your parenting adventures. Mm -hmm.